have seen for the past four weeks in the book of Romans a pretty bleak understanding to who we are. Um, it's, it's, it's been pretty uh, powerful and uh, disheartening as we recognize how terrible of humans that we are. And as Pastor Derek was probably preparing for sabbatical, he thought, well, when should I take my sabbatical? We're teaching Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3 at this time. I will take it there so that I don't have to preach these messages. And you guys are all probably thinking, man, Jonathan is a pretty mean guy. All he focuses on is sin and how terrible we are. And you're probably thinking he's going to need some counseling. And you're probably right. Right After this six weeks, um, uh, it's, it's been pretty heavy, and I, I'm, I'm sad to tell you that it's not going to get any easier today, um, but for the past four weeks, it's been pretty bleak. So let's kind of review really quick. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 32, we looked at how God has made himself known to us through, um, made himself known to us, and how then we suppress the truth about him, and we choose than to be God in our own lives and instead of letting God be the God of our lives, therefore subjecting ourselves to his wrath. Chapter 1, verse 18 through 32. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, the bad news continues. And we get called out for our moralistic hypocrisy and how we are storing up God's wrath for ourselves because of it. Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 29, Paul continues to build his argument for God stating that our religious pride is also hypocritical. The outside might look really good, but the inside, our hearts are dark and empty. And then chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. You think that Paul would get off his soapbox by now and start telling us about the good news, but no, he continues on. He's not done yet, where he anticipates the response that he's going to get about all of this bad news that he heaps upon us. And his readers, and he tells us that God's judgment is fair and is faithful. And even in our own human arguments of our understanding of how we believe life should be, we are wrong and God is right. Now we're in Romans chapter 3. So if you've got your Bibles with you, go ahead and open up to Romans chapter 3. We're in verses 9 through 20 this morning. We're not there yet. We're not to the good news yet. No, today we stand on trial. We are in God's courtroom this morning. So I don't know if any of you have ever been on trial before. I have. I was living in Atlanta. I got a speeding ticket in the church bus. Uh, church bus also had expired tags. So it was kind of double. Um, but anyways, I, I went to uh, the court and I remember walking into the courtroom and seeing the judge sitting high on his bench in front of the room. And I got to watch him make his verdict on several people before me. And I sat there and I really paid attention. And, I, and he said, he would go, to my left, go pay your fine. To my right, go to jail. And I heard this verdict played out several times. To my left, go to pay your fine. To my right, go to jail. So the guy that was right before me, man, he was dressed sharp. He had this suit on. He, he looked good. He had his briefcase and his papers, and he was ready to go. He was ready to fight the judge and the judge's verdict. And the judge began to read off his offenses. 
And then he stated his verdict. He said, guilty. And then he said to this guy, dressed really nice, step to my right, 90 days. I was like, oh. And the guy kind of did that too. He was like, ah. Oh. Everything began running through my head. I began thinking, okay, I've got a son at home. I've got a newborn daughter at home. I've, I've got all of this stuff. My wife is at home. I, I, I mean, I can't, I can't do 90 days. <laughs> right? And the, and the guy that was before me also started to think that way. He was like, um, excuse me, your honor, is what he said. And the judge goes, yes. He, he said, can I speak? And the judge looked at him and goes, you can try. And I was just like, oh, man, I am in trouble, right? And he stuttered out some words, and the judge then repeated his verdict. He said, step to my right, 90 days in jail. Then it was Jonathan Locke. <laughs> uh, yes. Now, I didn't have a suit on. No, I had cargo shorts in, in, a, in a Central Baptist Church student ministry T-shirt, Right? <laughs> I was scared to death. And I thought, I don't have a lawyer. I need a lawyer. I need someone to help me in front of this judge. I was doomed. And he read off my offenses and then he said, guilty. And it felt like an eternity for him to say left or right. I was like, please tell me left. Please tell me left. Please tell me left. And he said, step to my left and go pay your fine. Whew. Right? This is Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. Paul is continuing to give us the clearest picture of the bad news. We're not to the good news yet. I, I promise it's coming. It, it's coming next week. But remember, Paul has pointed out our problem in the simplest form, and that is sin. Our problem is sin, and we cannot fix the separation that sin has created between God and man. Now today, Paul is calling us to the stand. The stand before the judge. And we are the ones who are standing before God, the perfect judge. The one who holds our life in his hands. The one who, who we have to give an account to for everything that we have done. This is God's courtroom. We're not in the crowd, we're not a witness. We are the ones on trial, each and every single one of us individually. So let's see what happens. Verse nine, Paul says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? Paul's answered these questions and he says, no, not at all. See, there is no special treatment and he continues, says, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are all under sin. We've been charged with the crime of sin against a holy God. Paul has built this case from the beginning of Romans chapter 1, verse 18, to today's, through today's passages. Remember, Paul first accused, uh, first focused on the Gentiles, sorry, Anyone who were the not Jews were Gentiles, and he argued that even though they did not have the law, the Ten Commandments, that they still knew God. 
But the Gentiles chose to reject God and worship their own created things, so the indictment was for the Gentiles. It was set. But then remember, the Jewish Christians were going, yeah, Paul, you tell them. You tell them how bad they are. But then Paul turned quickly to them as well, and he said, hold up. Hold up. You are caught in the same indictment as well. Even though you think that you have the law and you have circumcision and all of those great things, you are messed up just as much as the Gentiles. Because you have sinned in the same way. Therefore, earning your place in this trial. And then remember, Paul answers the objections that the Jewish believers cried out. Where, you know, good court scene on TV. Object, your honor. I object. But Paul answers their objections. Their objections are, are, of, you know, are not Jews God's chosen people. And has God given up on them? And was the law offered nothing? All of those things, Paul answers back to them. But then we saw that the Jews had an advantage. They had an advantage. They had the law. But they rejected it. They still didn't get it. They had this great advantage, but they threw it away. And because of that, they're in a worse situation. Because they knew the truth and rejected it. Now, this is... Very important to understand the seriousness of this. That they knew the truth and rejected it. This is why Paul spends all of this time building his case. He wants to make sure that we know, he wants to make it clear just how serious sin really is. So let's start at the beginning. Let's start at Adam and Eve. What has sin done? Sin destroyed their relationship with God, which got them kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Sin then led to the first child to kill his brother. Sin caused God then to flood the whole earth and kill everything on it except for Noah and his family and the animals on the ark. Sin caused God to destroy entire nations and caused God's chosen people to be taken into slavery. And then ultimately, sin caused the Son of God to be nailed to a cross. This is the seriousness of sin. So let's keep going. Verses 10 through 18. Paul is pointing out in these verses the evidence against us and the seriousness of our sinful condition. Now, this list was not built on Paul's own insights or experiences, but from the pages of the Old Testament namely the book of Psalms and in the book of Isaiah. And one evidence builds upon the other. And Paul does this to show the religious Jews that this is not a new teaching. This is not something new to them. It's been around for a while. And even for us today, People profoundly disagree with the Apostle Paul's assessment of our condition. But we cannot get caught up in what we, as fallen people, think of ourselves. What matters is God's assessment of our condition. So verse 10 through 12, Paul writes, or quotes, as it is written, none is righteous, 
No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So what's repeated in this section right here, in these two verses? What do you see repeated a lot of? No one, none, not even one. All of us are sinners in desperate need of a Savior. But we can learn more from these verses. Not only are we sinners, but no one, none of us are righteous. Nor do we understand, nor do we seek God, nor do we do good. Here's what that means. We are seriously corrupted by sin. So let's take a, uh, a, a time out here in, to try to grasp the seriousness of sin. And, and let's do a theology 101 course. We're going to look at two terms. All right. The first term is original sin. Because of Adam and Eve's fall in the garden, every person born after that is born into sin. All right, that is original sin. Because of that, R.C. Sproul states it like this, that we are not sinners because we sin, we sin because we are sinners. Did we grasp that? Let me read it again. We are not sinners because we sin, we sin because we are sinners. The second term is total depravity. Total depravity is this. Simply means that every part of us is stained by sin. Every part of us is stained by sin. Now, when you think of the word stain, what do you think? I think of tie-dye, right? Everybody knows about tie-dye shirts, right, where you wrap your white t-shirt up and you put rubber bands around it and you dip it in dye and you pull it out, take the rubber bands off and show it off and it's like a really cool design. We all know that, right? That's not this. Total depravity is like the student that you invite to the tie-dye party that doesn't put any rubber bands on it and just dunks the shirt in the dye and then pulls it out and goes, where's the cool design? The whole shirt is impacted by the stain. All of us is impacted by the stain of sin. There's no cool design. It's all disgusting and wretched and putrid. But we want to argue that there's good things. We do good things. We see good things happening around the world. We can be kind. But hear me out. Sin has corrupted every part of us. And though we can be good and be kind to one another, sin still plays an influence in that. Because a lot of it is done selfishly. So Paul is pointing out here how sin affects our character. That our goodness is not good. We are not righteous. We don't understand. We don't seek for God. We all turn aside. We have all become worthless. And those are some seriously strong words. But remember, these are not Paul's words. But words from the Old Testament. That speak about mankind. This is why we need to understand our sinfulness and what it does. 
Let's continue, verse 13 and 14. It says, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is, on, is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Paul continues to point out the effects of sin on our speech and, and on, our, on our conversations. Simply put, the words that come out of our mouth is the evidence of corruption of the corruption of sin in our lives. If you want to know who someone is or what they are like, just listen to what they say. Because our speech is an audible picture of our heart. See, we've already learned that we can be great fools. We can, we can fool people in what they believe and think of us by simply wearing masks. Masks are, are hypocrisy. But trust me, the truth comes out when we are put under pressure. When we are put under pressure, the truth comes out. When you all woke up this morning and hopefully brushed your teeth, when you squeezed that tube of toothpaste, what came out? Toothpaste. Toothpaste came out. All right? There's an April Fool's joke that some people like to play where they take that tube of toothpaste and they squeeze it out and they fill it with horseradish sauce or, or yeah, but what? People do that? Yeah. Or mayonnaise or something like that. So that when that toothpaste is squeezed, you're there in the morning, your eyes are barely open, you're trying to brush your teeth, you squeeze the toothpaste and you go, you know, and it's, too, and it's mayonnaise. Nobody likes that. But check this out. That's exactly what happens to us when we are under pressure. When we are put under pressure, when we are put into stressful situations, when we hear news that doesn't match up with our stance and we are squeezed, what comes out? Is it the grace of God or something else? Our words will put our heart on display Think about it. When something happens to you that you don't like or that you don't agree with, is it the grace of Jesus that comes out of your mouth or is it something else? Is it hurtful? Is it unkind? That's where Paul's getting at these last two verses. Verse 15 and 17 says, Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace, they have not known. Paul continues to show us sin's effect on our conduct. See, our sin brings murder and ruin and misery and chaos. Sin is very destructive. And many times we think that our sin only impacts us and does not impact anyone else. But that is not the case. It's not just those people that sin out there. No, it's also us. And when we sin, it leaves a path of brokenness to everyone around us and even more. And the Bible clearly displays the impact of sin and its wave of destruction. I mean, many of us in this room have experienced firsthand the destruction that follows from sinful choices. See, sin is destructive. 
And it's the devil's joy for all of us to continue to live in its chains. Because in a life that is full of sin, there is no peace and there is no joy to be found. So I want to stop for one second and get real. If there is any ongoing sin that is holding you in the darkness, any sin that you are trying to hide from everyone around you, expose it. It's time for it to be exposed. Let it out into the lightness. Bring it to the light. Get help from a brother or a sister in Christ. For the sake of your spouse, for the sake of your family, for the sake of this church. Destroy the sin in your life before it destroys you. Because the consequences of sin are far worse than you can imagine. And it's never too late. You've never walked so far from God that you cannot come back. You will always be forgiven. That is how loving God is. But we cannot unsin. Now for the worst part. Like, how can it get me worse? Verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul shares with us the root of all sin. The root of all sin is that we do not fear God. We do not fear him because we don't even think about him. We sin and we feel no remorse because we don't care. But we fear a lot of things. The number of conversations I have with people, we fear a lot of things. We fear our safety. We fear for the safety of our family. We fear for what people think about us. We fear of losing our health or our money. We fear what's happening in our country and the list goes on and on and on. But we do not fear the one who created and controls us. Created and controls everything in the world. And this is the heart of the issue of sin. See, when we sin, we're not just sinning against other people or ourselves. We are sinning against God. We are attacking him. We're telling him that he is wrong. We're telling him that our way is better than his way. We're belittling his name. We're spitting in his face. And we are being charged as sinners. So we've heard the accusations. We are sinners. The evidence has all been laid out before the judge. Now, what's the verdict? There's no need for deliberation. There's no need for more evidence. The verdict is in. And in God's courtroom, we all stand guilty. We all stand guilty. Verse 19 through 20. It says, now we know that whatever the law has said, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So these two verses summarize the entire argument that Paul has made up to this point in Romans. 
We all know what God requires. We've all broken his law. We are guilty. And unlike the guy that was before me in court who was trying to get out of his sentencing, we will only be able to stand there silent. Every mouth may be stopped. I mean, what can we say? It's made clear. We are all sinners and we are all held accountable. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. This means that there is nothing that can be said to justify or defend us before God, the judge. See, Paul is trying to make himself very clear. There is nothing that we can do to save ourselves. There is no work that can be done to make us right before God. It doesn't matter if you're Billy Graham or you're the Apostle Paul. No one will be able to stand before God and say, but look at what all I have done for you. And according to this word, we won't even attempt. We won't even attempt to appeal. Because the truth will be before us. The holy God will be on his throne and we will stand silent because we will know that we are guilty. Now comes the sentencing. In God's courtroom, we all stand condemned. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. A wage is something that you have earned for yourself. What do we get for living a life of sin against God? Not just physical death, but also spiritual death. There are two places that people go when they die. Both are eternal and both are very different. One is heaven, eternity with God. The other is hell, eternity away from God. And the sentence that we deserve, based on our record and the evidence against us, is hell. We need to feel the weight of this. We need to feel the weight of this. We deserve hell. Even as Christians, those of you who know you're going to heaven, we deserve hell. Do we seriously grasp this? Do we understand our condition and our desperate need for the gospel? See, every day we get, every day that we get here on earth is an undeserved gift from God. It's grace. Every day we get is grace from God and it's an opportunity to know God's kindness which is meant to lead us to repentance. See, when I was standing in the courtroom in Atlanta, I was scared out of my mind. When I stand before God, I will be speechless. See, God will read my verdict, and I'll have nothing to say. He will then read my sentencing. It's still nothing, because I will know that I deserve every word given. But instead of stepping to my left or my right, Jesus will step up and say, 
I have paid the price for him. I have paid the price for him. Why? Well, because in that day when God sought me, January of 1997, I repented of my sin and put my faith in his son, Jesus. Jesus is more than a lawyer who will stand by my side and defend me in the courtroom. No, Jesus knows my penalty. He knows that I am guilty and he takes my place. He says, Jonathan, you walk through those doors free and I will pay the price on your behalf. This is the gospel. You're standing there guilty, condemned to die, no hope, and suddenly you're free. Not because of anything that you have done, but everything that he has done for you. So, how does this change your life? How does this change the way that you wake up in the morning? How does this change the way that you drive to church on Sunday mornings? How does this change with what you do tonight? How does this change how you respond to people when life doesn't look like it's going your way and you're squeezed? Do we respond like Jesus would? Or do we respond like what our hearts we already know is gonna come out? The gospel changes everything. And if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, I pray that you will make that decision this morning. That you will not leave this place without knowing, at least questioning and asking, what does it mean to be a follower of Christ? And make that decision to live your life completely to, to honor him and to glorify him. Let's pray.